Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, Christ Church. Good to be here with you today. My name is Drake, and I have the joy of serving as one of the youth pastors here in our community. And I'm excited to get to preach to us today. I have a message that I am very excited about. Um, I am the oldest of three siblings in my family. By a show of hands, who else is the oldest in their sibling group? Okay. So those of you who are not the oldest sibling in your family, go easy on us, okay? Because we had it hard growing up. Uh, Our parents, it was their first time raising a kid, so they might have messed up a few times. So just take it easy on us a little bit. My youngest sibling, her name is Jenna. She is 16 years old. By a show of hands, who's the youngest kid in the room? All right, spoiled kid, got it. So my sister Jenna and I have always gotten along. She is generous, she is kind, she is hilarious. I love my little sister Jenna. We have always gotten along. And then there's the middle child in our family. Raise your hand if you're a middle child. Yeah, I'm talking about you. So Chase is the middle child in our family. He's 22 years old now, and we are two years apart in age, and now we get along great. But back then in the day when we were both boys growing up, We did not get along so well. Two boys so close in age was fun for us at times, but probably wasn't so fun for our parents. We were both competitive in anything and everything that we did, which allowed for ample opportunities for tempers to flare and headlocks to be fastened tightly on the other person. Chase and I uh, would get in a lot of fights. My uncle Kevin is a dad to only girls. He has no sons. And so every time he would get around Chase and I, he would try to stir things up a little bit, if you know what I mean. Every holiday gathering at the Holderman household or the Pritchard household on my mom's side of the family, the main event of every holiday, Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, whatever holiday it was, was WWE featuring the Holderman brothers, Drake and Chase. My uncle Kevin loved to stir up this kind of trouble. He would pop in his favorite Carl Douglas CD, play the first track on the album. You know it as Kung Fu Fighting. I know it as one of us is about to get punched in the face. We would go at it. The song would start off with, oh, ho, ho, I should have had Elijah do that. But we would circle the room, the living room at grandma's house with this intense pose and this intense stare at the other person planning and scheming how we were going to rip their head off, the other person's head off. And then after 30 seconds of this intense anticipation, the song would go, everybody was kung fu fighting, and we would go nuts. We would run at each other, start punching and tackling and wrestling, and finally Uncle Kevin would call the match when somebody started to cry. That's how you won if you got the other person to cry. So we would bang each other's heads off the ground, just choke them out as hard as we could, My brother and I, we got in trouble for this. My uncle Kevin, he was roaring with laughter, but my mom was yelling in anger, and my grandpa was fast asleep on his lazy boy chair. We got in trouble every time we fought, whether it was because of Uncle Kevin or because of a disagreement in a wiffle ball game or because I thought I caught the bigger fish, but he said he did, and we just fight until one of us fell into the pond. We got in a lot of fights. Every time we got in an altercation, my parents would sit us down on a couch in the living room. And maybe you've participated in or even organized the scene like the one I'm about to describe to you. They would sit us down on the couch. We'd have to sit next to each other. My parents would be across the room in the two chairs that were in the living room. 
And they would make us say some pretty ridiculous statements to the other person. Like I would have to tell my brother, I'm sorry. And then he would have to tell me, I'm sorry too. And then I'd have to say, I forgive you. And Chase would have to say, I forgive you too. And then the worst of all is I would have to say, I love you. And Chase would have to say, I love you too. It was weird. And then my mom and my dad, they would make us seal it with a big hug. It was really weird. And then we would go upstairs, go about our business, and 30 minutes later, it happened again. Everybody was kung fu fighting. It never, ever stopped. We always got into altercations. And there's something kind of cute about two young boys who are still ordering off the kids' menu, who can't seem to get along, continue to bicker, with their arms crossed, won't forgive one another. It's a whole nother thing, though, when you have two adult Jesus followers who are bickering with one another and can't seem to forgive the other person. That's just immature and it's sinful. Our scripture today is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. If you have your Bible, your phone, flip or scroll your way there, we're gonna dive into that. But the topic of the scripture is forgiveness. And I have to be honest with you, forgiveness is something that I do struggle with. It's not something that comes easy to me. If you're familiar with the color code, I'm a blue on the color code. And one of our natural struggles is that we hold on to grudges or bitterness. We don't forgive easily. With all that to say, I'm preaching this sermon to myself this morning, and I invite you to listen in to see how the Holy Spirit is moving in my heart and my soul because of Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And in a sentence, this is what the Holy Spirit is saying to me. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Would you bow your head and pray with me? God, we're grateful to be here today. God, we recognize it's by your grace that we have breath in our lungs. We recognize it's by your grace that we got here that we get to be a part of this community, that we have the word of the Lord. God, this scripture that we're studying today is going to convict some of us. It's gonna be hard for some of us to come to grips with. And so God, we commit to being patient with you. We commit to being open to how the spirit leads. And God, we ask that you would speak to us. God, we're grateful to be here. It's in Christ's name that I pray, amen. The scripture we're studying today in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, opens with a question from Jesus' closest disciple. His name is Peter, and this is his question. Verse 21, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? This seems like a pretty reasonable question. Now, Peter is well-educated in the Jewish things, the circles of Jews and what they believe and what is taught. Most rabbis would teach that you need to forgive your offender three times. But on the fourth time, you no longer need to forgive the person who has offended you. And so Peter, I believe he means good by this question because he ups the ante. He says, it's not just three. What about seven times? Some of you may know that seven is a number in the Bible that represents completeness or wholeness. And so I believe he means good. But Peter's about to have his mind blown because Jesus responds with a greater standard. Jesus says this, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus says, not just seven times, Peter. No, my standard of forgiveness is greater than that. Forgive your offender 77 times. Some Bible scholars believe that what Jesus is saying is actually seven times 70, which if you do the math is 490 times you should forgive 
your offender. But the point here is not to count numbers. It's to weigh the number. What Jesus is saying is there should be no limit to how much you forgive or how often you forgive the person who has offended you. He jumps into a parable that tells this and illustrates this point that he is trying to make, that there should be no limit to the forgiveness that you have for another person. The parable begins in verse 23, and it starts like this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to repay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Wow. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt and he let him go. The king in this parable represents God. And the servant represents a disciple. In the historical context that this parable is being told, there would be masters or kings, and they would have servants who worked for them. And servants were allowed to keep part of the profit in which they made. But once a year, every year, there would be a time when taxes were to be collected. And it was this time that this parable is being told. And this certain servant came up short. How short? 10,000 bags of gold, roughly 60 million days wages. It would have taken this servant 140,000 years to repay. I want to say it again. These numbers are not meant to be counted. They're meant to be weighed. This debt that this servant owes the king is inconceivable, immeasurable. There's no way he could pay it back. And so what does the servant do? There's no way he could work 60 million days or 140,000 years to repay this debt. So what does he do? The only thing he knows he can do, he begs. I worked my first job when I was 12 years old. I, it was a job, but it was with my grandpa. And it was this kind of the shady deal where he paid me under the table, probably illegal, but I didn't tell anybody because I was 12 years old and I was getting $20 bills and that's all I cared about. My responsibilities for my grandpa were to mow his rental properties and take care of other odd jobs around the properties that he owned in Tulsa. And I was a decent 12-year-old worker, but I definitely wasn't worth what he was paying me. And my actions that I sometimes brought about on the job definitely did not deserve good favor from my grandpa. My grandpa was a great boss. He always took me out to lunch every day and he bought my meal. Sometimes I would not just get one shake, I would get two milkshakes for the day. He was a good grandpa. And then after work was over, we went back to grandma's house and my grandma would cook us dinner and I would get my third milkshake of the day. I loved working for my grandpa. He was a good boss. But there were times when I worked for my grandpa when I messed up royally. I remember trying to be a 12, 13, 14 year old learning how to pour concrete and would have all this concrete, this wet concrete in a wheelbarrow and I'd be pushing it like this and it would tump over into the yard and I'd be like, no grandpa, better not have seen that. I remember dropping an AC window unit right there and it just crashed on the ground and broke to pieces. One of the things that I did more than anything else was I mowed for my grandpa. My grandpa is a very particular man. He's a perfectionist. And I guess he didn't trust the 12-year-old on the riding lawnmower all that much. My grandpa always followed me, just watching me, literally side by side with me on the mower, pointing out every little piece of grass that I missed. It was annoying. 
there was one day that my grandpa decided to let me mow in peace, mow alone. I don't know where my grandpa went. I don't know what he went to do, but I was there mowing as a 12, 13-year-old, and I had just gotten my iPod, my very first iPod. I had it in my pocket. I put the headphones in my ears, and I wasn't paying attention. I was just listening to Toby Keith and having a good time, okay? And I didn't see the flower bed with the big rocks that are bordering the flower bed, and I rolled that lawnmower right up into the flower bed, and I broke the blade on the rocks and cut about half of the flower bed right off. And then I was smart enough to move the lawnmower out of the yard and put like a twig behind the lawnmower, break it over my knee and tell grandpa, this twig broke the lawnmower. I'm sorry. I didn't know it would do that. My grandpa is probably smarter than what I thought though. And the next week when I came to mow again, I had previously mowed with a red lawnmower and now it was an orange lawnmower. And I got a very deep fear in my heart that I was going to have to buy my grandpa that new lawnmower, or at least repay him for that new lawnmower. But my grandpa never said a thing, and it blew my mind because I was the one who cut off half the flower bed and destroyed the blade, and he had to buy the new mower. And the response to the king in the parable that we're reading today drops jaws. This is what he said. The servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt and let him go. The king forgave an immeasurable, inconceivable debt that this man would never be able to repay. I want us to know this about our God. Our God is generous with his forgiveness, and this generous forgiveness needs to be echoed throughout his entire kingdom. Thus far, the parable has taken place in the king's chambers. But now Jesus is taking us from the king's chambers to the servants' quarters, and he's picking up in verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Take note of the contrast. 10,000 bags of gold, a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Hold up. Did that just say what I think it said? But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, a small amount compared to what he owed the master. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. You mean to tell me that this servant has the audacity to walk out of the king's chambers with his debt just forgiven right into the servant's quarters and take another servant by the throat and say, give me what you owe me. Give me what you owe me. The story continues in verse 29. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. This second servant says verbatim the same thing that the first servant said to the king. Be patient with me. I'll pay it back. Forgive me. Yet the response of the one to whom the debt is owed would be dramatically different. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. You know what's sick and twisted about this whole debacle? Is that this first servant throws the second servant in jail until he can repay the debt, which is now something that he will never be able to do because he's in jail and he can't earn a wage. He can't earn money so that he can repay this debt. 
this is wrong, this is twisted, this is cruel. And I'm not just the only person who's recognizing this, and maybe you do too, but there's also other servants in this parable who recognize this. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. Then the parable ends, and Jesus' last comment to Peter and the other people listening in that day is this. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. That's a strong statement. It's a statement we shouldn't pass over or bat an eye at. This is a statement that should be reflected on. And the question I'm wrestling with myself is, what am I to do with verse 35? What am I to do with this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart? I think it would be helpful for us to think about what this isn't saying, what Jesus is not saying with this statement. I don't think that Jesus is promoting a works righteousness type of salvation by you, you earn your place with God. You earn your place in the presence of God by what you do. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying because in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through nine, Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Scripture does not contradict Scripture, so Jesus cannot be saying, you earn your way into God's presence. You earn your way into heaven. Well, then, is this teaching that God's love for us is conditional? I don't think so, because Paul also says, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This parable can't be teaching that God loves us simply because of who we are, what we do. I think what Jesus is saying in this parable is this. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And that's not just some pithy statement I've come up with myself. That's scripture. Ephesians 4.32 says this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ. God forgave you. And Colossians 3.13 says this. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. A true disciple of Jesus, as someone who's been forgiven by the king, is extending that forgiveness to others. Forgiveness experienced should be forgiveness expressed. I want to talk about the servant who's at the center of this parable today. I think that everybody in this room can probably relate to him in one of two ways. The first way I think that we can relate to this this servant in the center of the story is that every single one of us in this room, I would bet, has probably been wronged before. There's probably someone out there who has owed you a debt or who still owes you a debt. Maybe it's the person who's cheated on you. Maybe it's the person who's stolen from you. Maybe it's the person who's abandoned you or abused you. What are we to do? with people who've harmed us in this way. I mean, we're talking about big sins here. Are we really supposed to forgive the people who've hurt us in major ways? I seem to remember a king who was owed a debt that would take someone 140,000 years to repay. And what did he do? He canceled it and let him go. 
The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Listen, I don't think Jesus is telling us that we need to rehire the employee who's stolen from the company or give A's to the kid who got caught cheating on his test. And I don't think we're supposed to open the doors of the prison and let all the inmates out. I think what Jesus is saying here is that his disciples need to set their hearts free from bitterness, anger, rage, hate, and set the offender's heart free from the shame that they are experiencing. And so for today, maybe this means you call your wayward son or daughter and forgive them for running out. Or maybe you forgive your spouse for running out. Or maybe, just maybe on a day like today, you call the man who walked out on your family 10, 20, 30 years ago and forgive him. You certainly don't have to celebrate him today. But maybe it would do your heart good and his heart good if you said three words, I forgive you. Some of us in this room are owed a major debt. The response of the king that should be echoed throughout his kingdom, I forgive you, forgive, as the Lord forgave you. The second way that some of us in this room relate to the servant at the center of this story is that we owe a debt to the king who's in the story. Every single one of us in this room has sinned. We've trespassed against God in many more ways than one. The debt in which we owe God is immeasurable and inconceivable. We owe him our lives. And so what are we to do with this? What are we to do with the debt in which we owe God? I would suggest that our response needs to be the same as the servants. Beg for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And how is this debt canceled? How is this forgiveness extended? How is it offered to us? Paul says it like this in Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away nailing it to the cross. Our debt is paid because Jesus paid it. Some of you need to accept this forgiveness because you owe a debt to God that you cannot repay yourself. And Jesus has paid it for you. So accept the forgiveness. If you've never accepted God's forgiveness for you, the sacrifice of Jesus I would encourage you after the service to head out into the lobby in the corner over there in the prayer center are going to be pastors and elders and they would love nothing more than to talk to you about accepting the forgiveness of the king. You can't practice. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And so you've been forgiven by the Lord. So accept his forgiveness. I want to end today with three challenges for our church community. The first challenge is this. As you leave these doors today, Live in an awareness of your indebtedness. You owe a debt. You owe a big debt. Don't think that you're better than anybody else. Don't think that you're perfect. Don't think that you're sinless because you owe a major debt. It is impossible to repay. I think it'll help us keep our perspective on God. The second challenge is to live in an awareness of God's generous forgiveness. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our King is offering us forgiveness, freedom in the name of Jesus. So live in an awareness of that. And the third thing I wanna challenge our church community to is this, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Would you pray with me? God, we're here and we recognize your goodness. We recognize, Lord, that we have nothing that is without you. God, we recognize that we owe you a debt, that you've forgiven that debt. And now we will echo that forgiveness throughout your kingdom. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.